It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. As other states pass restrictive abortion measures, what might the impact be in Colorado, which eased restrictions even before Roe versus Wade? I think this will help at the ballot box. And so we may see more folks voting their values. When you make abortion illegal, you don't get rid of abortion. You just make it hard on people. Then how quilts have come to represent broken promises made to Native Americans. A Boulder artist explains her unique perspective. Plus, forget Colorado's famous 14ers. There are other mountains in the state that promise to test your hiking and climbing skills this summer. The... Centennial 13ers, on an average, are harder than the 14ers. And they have, on an average, I would say, less trails to them. So they're tougher outings, which is good. I like that. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. Four states have passed bills restricting access to abortions in the last month. By comparison, Colorado was the first state to ease restrictions even before Roe v. Wade. With new laws going into place around the country, we wanted to know what kind of effect that's having here. To be clear, this is not a discussion about whether abortion is right or wrong. Let's start with Vicki Cowart, CEO for Planned Parenthood of the Rocky Mountains. Vicki, welcome to the program. Thanks. It's really great to be here. I appreciate the time. Recent numbers from Planned Parenthood show that about 10 percent of abortions in Colorado were performed on women from other states. What do you know about these women who travel here for abortions? We see women from North and South Dakota, Nebraska, a lot of women coming from Wyoming, All states that don't have very much access to reproductive health care available, and in some cases because of extreme restrictions. So rather than drive across Texas, for example, where a woman might have to see the provider two days in a row, it might be just easier for her to drive or fly to Denver. So Colorado's central location in the country is part of that. Yeah, it is. And then when you look at where we're seeing the most um, heinous restrictions that are going in place now, the the terrible bans that are being put in place, it's throughout the Midwest and down into the South. So there's, you know, this great giant swath of about half to two-thirds of the country is dealing with some kind of extreme, extremely restrictive Uh, legislation or regulation that's making it harder and harder for women to access abortion in their own state. And with new laws in states like Alabama, Missouri, and Georgia, do you expect that number of women coming from those states to Colorado to grow? I think women are going to have to go somewhere to get their health care. And they're going to move to places like Colorado. It may not be Colorado particularly, but Colorado, I think Montana will still be a haven for people. Uh, New Mexico is likely to be a haven. So, yeah, people are going to move. And that expectation that people are going to move, is that something that you're hearing from people living in those states? Or is that something based on the legislation coming down, just the number of people living there? It's It's a little bit of both. Here's what we know. When you make abortion illegal, you don't get rid of abortion. You just make it hard on people. You you cause misery in people's lives. And sometimes, as we saw pre-Roe, um, that results in even death. So 
women are going to travel, women are going to do what they need to do to be able to take care of themselves. And taking care of themselves may involve seeking an abortion. And we should say that Planned Parenthood is by no means the only abortion provider in Colorado, but it is one of the largest in the country. What do these new laws mean for your organization? Well, first off, they mean that we are fighting them as hard as we can. These proposed abortion bans have just been skyrocketing in the last year, even though we know that people support Roe and they support the idea of women having access to abortion. So Planned Parenthood is is standing and working hard to both continue providing the health care, but to protect the healthcare in places where we can to make sure that it remains available. And then in the places where we are able, we are expanding services. We are making sure that more people can come to us. And because of the somewhat unique but certainly positive environment that Colorado and New Mexico have, we at Planned Parenthood of the Rocky Mountains are working hard to make sure that we can see all the patients that we're seeing today, all the folks who come to us on a regular basis for their health care. We want to still be there for them, and we have to be ready to see more people as they begin to make their way to us. So we're expanding some of our services. And why do you think that we're seeing this wave of abortion restrictions now? This has been coming for a while. It's just reached a point that we can't ignore it. And again, I I think of this as a man-made disaster, but it's years in the making. It's particularly hard on women of color, women in rural areas, all dealing with worse health outcomes as a result of these movements against healthcare in general and reproductive healthcare specifically. And you said this was a long time in coming. Why is that? I think we can look to the last national election and some of the language that we heard from the Trump-Pence administration. They have been very clear. Um, You can look to the appointees to the Supreme Court. The President Trump's statements about the Supreme Court have been very clear that he wanted to put people on the court that would damage, if not reverse, Roe. And you can actually, you can look at across the country, anti-abortion politicians who've been emboldened by the Trump administration, and they are doing whatever they need to to put safe and legal abortion out of the reach of people nationwide. And this issue has clearly mobilized anti-abortion forces around the country. Is it drawing new political support to people and organizations that oppose more restrictive laws? I think what is happening is that people are understanding that a right that has been in place for 50 years is suddenly threatened. A a reality of American women that they are can be and should be considered full and equal participants in society are suddenly being told that they no longer have bodily autonomy, that they no longer have the right to make their own health care decision. And our phones are ringing off the hook. People are coming in and asking, what can I do? How can I help? And at the beginning of this year, Republican lawmakers in Colorado introduced a bill that would make it illegal to perform abortions in almost all cases. It failed early in the session, but it brings up the question, how close is Colorado to having abortion laws like these in other states? 
Yeah, that's a really good question. And it is worth noting that the bad bill that was presented in Colorado was actually worse than anything that we've seen passed um, anywhere because it equated uh, human life beginning at fertilization. And so no abortion would have been allowed. The citizens, the voters of Colorado have spoken on this many, many times and with great number the three times that we've had a ballot initiative about what we call personhood, you know, life begins at conception, and that would ban abortions. Each time it lost with greater number. So Colorado citizens are very clear that they believe in a woman having the right to make her own decisions about this. Vicki, thank you so much for being here. I appreciate it. Thanks for spending some time on this. Vicki Cowart is the CEO for Planned Parenthood of the Rocky Mountains. Now to that legislation I just mentioned. Republican State Representative Lori Sane is the lawmaker who introduced that bill. Again, to be clear, this is not a discussion about whether abortion is right or wrong. We're trying to get a sense of the impact new restrictions in other states might have in Colorado, including how that might influence potential laws and ballot measures. Your bill to ban abortions failed early on in the session. The same has happened with several others in previous years, and Coloradans have rejected several constitutional amendments through the years to restrict access to abortions. Do you see a bill like those that we're seeing in other states passing here anytime soon? And honestly, I don't know, but I think in the trying, we're still changing hearts and minds. And I do believe the younger generation, as I've been talking to them, um, they are going to be the mo- one of the most pro-life generations in this country. And I think one of the reasons for that is that the age of sonograms are here. So when they've seen their little brother or little sister, they've always understood, even though they couldn't see them with their own eyes, they they knew that was a unique individual person, um, their entire being. So I, I think that conversation is turning around whether I would uh, guess that we'd have success next session. Uh, Honestly, I don't know. may not be very likely with this composition, but that's why we keep trying. We we really believe that we are created as image bearers of God. And I also believe you don't have to be religious to understand that if we are killing our future, if we're killing our children, we're not going to survive long as a culture. And Colorado has historically given women more access to abortions than other states have. It was the first state to ease restrictions even before Roe versus Wade. How has what's happened elsewhere in the last few months changed what you're hearing from people around the state? I, I think uh, the conversation's changing, especially because they used. I, I've run several bills over the last seven or, seven or so years, and one of those was on gender selection abortion. And at that time, there was a denial that this was a destination location for abortion. It most certainly is. I mean, we have a doctor in Boulder who perter- uh, performs late-term abortions, wrote a manual on late-term abortions, and we have become that kind of state where people travel here from other states. And unfortunately, that may increase um, if. Uh, uh, you know, other states do enact some of these more res- more restrictions on abortions. And in light of what's happening in other states, have you been in touch with anti-abortion lawmakers or activists who have worked to pass these bills? I probably will come in contact with them this summer. Uh, there's various conferences I attend, so I'm sure that's going to be a very hot topic of discussion. And according to a Gallup poll, half of Americans think abortion is morally wrong. And it's clearly one of those politically divisive issues. 73% of liberals think that it's morally acceptable, while only 23% of conservatives do. How do you see this mobilizing Republicans right now? 
I think this will help at the ballot box. And so we may see more folks voting their values. It's also worthwhile to point out that some of these more restriction abortion laws, these heartbeat bills are being sponsored by Democrats. Like in Louisiana, where an abortion ban bill was sponsored by a Democratic senator and signed into law by a Democratic governor. Uh, Your proposed bill would have made abortion illegal in almost all cases, even situations of rape and incest. It defines the start of life, unlike the Georgia and Louisiana bill that say that it begins when a heartbeat is detected. Yours is at the moment of conception, so even earlier. Do you plan to reintroduce your bill next year? Absolutely. Last week, a ballot measure was submitted to the Secretary of State's office that would ban abortions in Colorado after 22 weeks. And this certainly wouldn't be the first time the issue of abortion has appeared on the state elections. Initiatives to limit the access or funding have appeared sporadically since at least the 1980s. Are you involved with this latest initiative? In fact, I was shocked that it came out. But it'll be interesting to see how many, uh, again, if how this issue fares at the ballot. Uh, shocked in what way? I, I I was not involved in that, but it was when a reporter pointed that out to me, I'm like, really? And he's like, you're not involved in that? Like, no, not involved in that one. It was, it's a completely uh, organic effort. And do you support it? I have not looked at the language of that, actually, interestingly enough. So um, that's something I'll have to do some research on. Representative Sane, thank you for your time. Thank you so much. State Representative Lori Sane introduced a bill to restrict abortions in Colorado, similar to measures in Alabama and Missouri. The bill failed, but Sane plans to reintroduce another one next session. Meantime, proponents of an initiative to prevent most abortions after 22 weeks are working to put the issue before Colorado voters in the fall. That remains to be seen if the U.S. Supreme Court will take up the legality of Roe v. Wade based on laws passed in other states. Antique quilts now hang in the University of Colorado Boulder's Art Museum. But these are not your average bed linens. Colorado artist Gina Adams stitched calico letters into these quilts to reproduce treaties between the United States government and American Indian nations. Hundreds of treaties signed in the 18th and 19th centuries established borders and conditions of behavior. Many helped the United States expand its territory. Many led to broken promises to Native Americans. Adams explores these treaties' complicated history and her own heritage in her exhibit, Its Honor is Hereby Pledged. Hi, Gina. Hello. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being here. Throughout your education and work, you've spent a lot of time thinking about materials and their meaning. Tell me about the significance of the materials for this project, calico and antique quilts. So calico was the first milled commodity in the United States for export to other countries. It was also very directly tied to the slave industry because of the needed the cotton. Most of the mills were in the upper northeast United States. And the quilt, for me, signifies the movement westward. So the westward migration into the Colorado territories and the territories that surrounded Um, the central part of the United States after the Louisiana Purchase. And you're working with quilts. You didn't make the whole quilt. You're finding these antique quilts, right? Right, right. I find antique quilts that are about 100, 150 years old, and that's really important. I don't make the whole quilt. Uh, I start with something that was made by somebody else, but that is now unidentified 
I don't know who the maker, the original maker of the quilt was. And that's important to you. That's very important. Right. So the unidentified runs throughout my work and actually it runs throughout museums and archives in this, in the United States. Most um, artifacts, regalia, pieces from, um, Native American tribal nations that are in museums are labeled as unidentified. Mm. And where did the idea come from to stitch treaties between indigenous nations and the United States government onto quilts? So it first came from researching. I do heavy amounts of research. I research the um, Indian Wars newspapers, and my background is also as a printmaker. And the letterpress font was Gaudi old style in the Indian Wars newspapers. So then I blew it up in Illustrator, made templates, and I was just finding an antique quilt that I decided to stitch uh, the treaties onto the antique quilt, but it came through a dream, actually. I collected the first quilt, then had a dream that night that I was to do an entire treaty and stitch it on the quilt. And what is the first treaty that you stitched? The Treaty with the Yankton Sioux, 1867. And why did you choose that one? Well, I chose that one because I'm Ojibwa, but I'm also, there's a part of me that's also Lakota. And I was teaching at Haskell Indian Nations University in Lawrence, Kansas. And I was also having, as a graduate student, I was having these greater conversations about post-colonial theory and decolonizing methodologies with other indigenous descent um, individuals who were in the program with me and in the, in the uh, University of Kansas the conversations were amongst Lakota people, and I wanted to honor them. And it also includes the land of Lawrence, Kansas, that and, treaty. And are there treaties in your exhibit that relate to Colorado? Yes, yes. The Treaty of Fort Wise, 1851, was the precursor to the Sand Creek Massacre and involves the whole of Colorado but especially was giving, given the land of the Cheyenne and the Rapa, of which we stand right now um, in this interview, we are on their land. They were given the southern Colorado land east of uh, the Front Range and the Great Divide of the Rockies. And then after the Sand Creek Massacre, it sort of went away. It was like just forgotten about. So that treaty, all the other broken treaty quilts and the treaties are all surrounding and overlapping Colorado. So the Fort Laramie 1851 treaty, that land was also overlapping Colorado. So, and then the Guadalupe Hidalgo treaty, again, overlapping into Colorado up into California. So um, there's a lot of um, inclusion of the state of Colorado in its lands in many of these treaties, all eight of which are included. This is inherently such place-based work. Yes. You situate yourself in both your European and your Native American heritage. Tell me about that dichotomy. So my European heritage or my immigrant heritage is Irish and Lithuanian, but I'm my last name being Adams. I'm a direct descendant of Samuel Adams. So Samuel Adams was a great-great-grandfather. And so I consider myself half colonizer. I have to, every single body of work I do, I'm trying to include healing, um, bringing something together in a hybrid fashion. I call myself a hybrid artist because I am both colonizer and I am Native American descent. And so one side of my heritage actually imposed um, what happened to the other side. 
And like you said, your grandfather, he's both the Jibwe and Lakota. Yes. yes. But you're not an enrolled tribal member. No. Does that complicate no. the issue for you? Well, it it's actually, it is a factor. And it's one I acknowledge and honor and um, consider that I think about that heritage. I think about that I am dissent. I am not enrolled. I think the enrollment system is a way to keep people out and keep people in. It's a sort of a system of apartheid that this, that was set up by the United States government, and we don't often think of it that way. And that separation. And that separation. But there's many people like me who are of descent but may have enrollment, maybe not, and they don't have much of a connection because that was the purpose from the United States government. And what so, are you hearing up, from Native American nations about your work? I, I'm actually being accepted and the work is being accepted and I hear a lot of thank yous and I also have many people who have been reaching out to me asking me to to create a broken treaty quilt of their treaty and I do I do I did the I'm just been asked by the Iowa to do one the Iowa in Kansas and I've done the Passamaquoddy treaty and of course I'm at 43 broken treaty quilts this is my life's work so I plan on doing all of them which is 364 more than 500 if you consider the codicils of change and how long does it take to do each treaty so originally it took me almost a year to do the first one I've now got it down to about a couple months worth of time I do not do this work alone. I have assistants who help me cut letters who are a huge part of this. It takes a community. And everything, every time a quilt is collected, that money goes right back to my assistants and materials so I can just continue making new quilts. And you also involve the public in the creation yes. of this art. You're inviting people yes. to join you in cutting letters right. for these quilts. Right. Tell me about the decision to include the public in that process. So the public, that started last summer while I was an artist in residence at Dartmouth College. I wanted to have a session or sessions over the two and a half months I was there to ask the public to come in and help me cut letters. The idea is that we would cut letters sitting, talking, and they could ask questions. We could have conversations. I think in the conversation, there's huge possibilities for change, huge possibilities of the history that isn't known and isn't taught in schools. And you describe yourself as a research artist. Yes. What historical understanding do you want people to who see your art to come away with? That what occurred in this country is vast and these treaties are extremely important. First and foremost, I want the treaties to be acknowledged. They are right under level of importance of the const. They're right underneath the Constitution, yet we don't recognize them. And the United States government didn't honor them. And it's really important for people to take away with how how we all have the power to create change right now. And if they look at this work and they're enticed in and they want to know more, I want them to go off and do their own research and perhaps read the treaties and know which land they're on and understand who, what peoples originally inhabited the land and the water and the air that they're breathing right now. Dina, thank you for being here today. Thank you. Artist Gina Adams lives in Boulder, or rather in Longmont, Colorado. Her work explores the tensions between her colonial and indigenous heritage. It's on display at CU Boulder through November. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. <music> 
Colorado's 14ers are the stuff of legend. Peak baggers come out in force during the summer to scale these 14,000-foot mountains. And social media is full of photos of hikers at the summits holding handwritten signs with the name of the mountain and the elevation. But there are some less well-known mountains in Colorado, some just as difficult as their higher-altitude neighbors. Husband and wife team Jerry and Jennifer Roach of Montrose climbed the tallest ones and wrote the guidebook Colorado's 13ers, From Hikes to Climbs. Hi, Jerry and Jennifer. Hi. Hi. Good to be here. Jennifer, you've climbed more than 1,000 peaks in Colorado. Jerry, you've climbed Mount Everest. You guys are serious climbers. Jerry, what is the appeal of a 13er to an experienced mountaineer? I just learned that three-quarters of the land in the United States that is above 10,000 feet is in Colorado. More and more people are finishing all the 14ers, 50-some, depending on exactly how you want to count, and that they're looking around for what else to do. Well, the highest 13ers is the next obvious choice. We call the centennial 13ers or the 50 plus 13ers that added to the 14ers make up the 100 highest peaks in Colorado, which is another nice goal. It's a round number. It's attainable by mortals. And it includes a lot of very interesting peaks. And Jennifer, obviously dividing mountains by 13ers and 14ers, that's an idea that people have constructed. These mountains exist in the same ranges. But is hiking a 13er different in some way than hiking a 14er? Well, I've always liked to be in a place where there weren't as many people. And I, although I, I do love the 14ers, I, I started out by climbing all the 14ers. Um, I wasn't even thinking about doing anything lower than the 13ers. I really wanted to be somewhere where there weren't a lot of other people. And so I think I, I was attracted to just being out there and doing these in groups. I, I wasn't really looking at higher 13ers, lower 13ers. It's just whatever was accessible and whatever I could do in my skill level. And what about the trails? Are 13ers as built up as 14ers? I mean, some of them are. I think it depends on how close it is to a 14er would be one way to look at it. And I I think one of the things I liked about doing the 13ers is they're you really had to work on the map, and you really had to ask around. You know, we didn't have internet then. I mean, how you got info was uh, making a phone call to someone that you know has climbed this. And this is when you started hiking. You're right. That's right. So it was all just a paper map and a compass. And you've written this guidebook, so tell me a little bit more about how you find these routes that you're describing for other people to follow. Yes. In the Old days, the good old days, I started climbing in the 50s, when you had to figure out the peak more or less by yourself. You had a map and a compass. And not necessarily a trail to follow. And maybe a trail, maybe not. And you'd go there and you'd figure it out. And more often than not, you'd reach the summit. Sometimes, oops, you made a mistake and you ended up on the wrong peak. There's famous (laughs) stories that end on the wrong summit. And you figure it out. So this book is a collection of a lot of years of hiking experience in Colorado. Oh, yes. Yeah. And Jerry, were there any nasty climbs when you're trying to knock out these highest 13,000-foot mountains? Sure. The Centennial 13ers, on an average, are harder than the 14ers. The hardest 14ers have some class 4 climbing. It's easy climbing, but it's climbing, not hiking. 
several of the Centennial 13ers have class five climbing, which typically people use ropes on. So they are, uh, on an average, harder. And they have, on an average, I would say, less trails to them. So they're tougher outings, which is good. I like that. The hardest Centennial 13ers are Dallas, Tea Kettle, and Jagged. I've proclaimed Jagged the best peak bag in Colorado. It's not near a 14er. Jagged is way deep in the San Juans. Dallas and Tea Kettle are more accessible. They're above Telluride, and they're a bit nasty. Dallas is known for loose rock. Tea Kettle is very impressive to look at. It's only really hard right at the tippy top. So it it varies, and it's the variation that makes mountaineering interesting because node climbs are the same. Even if it's the same route, two different visits can be totally different experiences. And Jennifer, you guys live in Montrose. Tell me about some of your favorite hikes outside of the Front Range. Well, I really love the San Juans, and that's where a lot of the, when Jerry used the word remote, I was instantly thinking about some of the things that I've done in the San Juans 20 years ago, 10 years ago, even just a year ago. These peaks are not easily accessible, and this year is going to be a prime example of that because of the snow, the the creek crossings. So we have some some beautiful peaks that we can see right from the end of our street that we live on. Uh, and if we go a little further, you know, we can we can get into some of these lower peaks that maybe aren't visible from the street, but we know where they are. The Cimarron Range comes to mind. I really love it in there. What do you enjoy so much about it? Um, not a lot of people. Uh, you have to really work hard to get to your chosen peak summit. I mean, you have to read a lot of information on it, if there is any, online. Uh, you have to really study the maps, um, get some GPS coordinates, and use those. And and it kind of turns the whole thing into a project. And that's I really have started enjoying doing that, that the more difficult and the more complicated, the more I like it. And I hear a theme from both of you. You both enjoy hikes where there aren't a lot of people. Do you worry that writing a guidebook is going to bring more well, people to your mountains? Oh, no. Famous question. Yes. <laughs> In a, it's a good question, crowding, especially on the standard routes on the 14ers. It's exploded. Now, uh, I would back up several steps and say that it's a good thing that we have hundreds of people trying to climb our 14ers. The mountains need a loving user group. There are other interests that if the hikers and climbers simply disappeared, the other interest might take over. Mining, logging, private property, mansions. So I like the fact that we have a loving user group and would encourage people to join the group, given the environmental problems we have today, which are increasing. It's an increasing need to bond with nature. It's not good enough just to look at a picture once in a while. 
And I do wonder how you balance those environmental concerns. I noticed that in some of the hikes, you include some tips for users. There's one where you ask people to pee in the rocks and not in the tundra because otherwise <laughs> some gregarious goats might dig up the tundra. Right. How do you balance environmental concerns and encouraging people to go use these wild places? Well, I would I would hope that everybody is who is going out there is using their their sensibilities and um the, you know peeing in the rocks and or that's because there's salt and the goats goats want to dig it up uh or you know not littering or i kind of have a faith that people will do the right thing because they love it so much and it's so beautiful that they they want to leave it as they found it unspoiled you guys have climbed so many mountains in general, but also for this book. I wonder if there's any specific story from climbing these 13ers that sticks with you. Well, let's see. Jerry and I proposed to one another on the summit of a peak in the San Juans. Which peak? Uh, we called it Proposal Peak. What else? <laughs> Aptly named. It, was an unna- it is an unnamed 13er, but we've sort of given it the moniker propo- Proposal Peak. And why that one? Because we hadn't climbed it before. <laughs> We were working up to it. (laughs) That's wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having having us. us. That's Jerry and Jennifer Roach. They live in Montrose. The second edition of their hiking book, Colorado's 13ers, is out now. Governor Jared Polis has made it clear he wants the state to transition to carbon-free electricity in the next two decades. But CPR's energy reporter Grace Hood found tapping that new energy relies on a delivery system that may not be able to keep up. Retired Boulder resident Jerry Palmer loves driving his electric Toyota SUV. Yeah, so here's the plug. A couple of times each week, he follows the same routine. He lifts the large charging holster from a plastic mount in his garage. Plugging it in, and then you'll see two lights come on here. On sunny days, Palmer charges his car from rooftop solar. On cloudy ones, he draws power from Excel Energy. The utility uses a system of big and small wires to connect homes like Palmer's to massive power plants. It's called the grid. More renewable energy means big changes to that system. Rich Sedano heads up the Regulatory Assistance Project, a nonprofit focused on the clean energy transition. We're going to need to have a lot of changes in the system to make a very high penetration renewable system work. That's because the national grid isn't as connected as you may think. For example, there aren't efficient transmission lines that can move early morning solar power from New York to California. Sedano says one fix could be high-voltage transmission lines that crisscross the country. But Congress would have to make that a higher priority. Generally, we don't get the kind of direction that will motivate these kinds of big-picture developments. And then there's cost. A National Renewable Energy Lab study estimates it would take $70 billion to build these lines. The lack of political will and federal dollars means right now grid improvements are all local. And utilities like Excel Energy still have to keep the lights on. 
On the ninth floor of Excel's Denver high-rise, Drake Bartlett oversees real-time operations for the utility. You know, an apt analogy would be to say these are kind of like you know, air traffic control dispatchers. Bartlett stands in front of three workers. Each has more than a dozen computer screens that display power plant details. There's information on the power flowing from wind and solar. As the system shifts away from fossil fuels, workers have to find ways to provide power when the sun isn't shining and the wind isn't blowing. As our customers use electricity, we're constantly adjusting the amount of generation to match that usage. Excel wants to use 100% carbon-free sources by 2050. That means more renewables. One possible update? An arrangement that allows Excel Energy to share wind and solar from Colorado with other states. Right now, that's not possible. As we move towards, you know, a carbon-free grid, we have ideas of where it's, where it's going to come from, how we're going to get there, but there are other parts of it that we don't know. The stakes of getting this right are huge. Inefficient solutions could end up costing customers more. A worst-case scenario could mean power outages. Right now, each state is finding its own way. Hawaii is trying to meet its 100% renewable energy goal by enticing customers to add solar to rooftops. California is focused on giant solar and wind farms, some of them built out of state. Juan Torres with the National Renewable Energy Lab says those two goals demand very different grid updates. So you have to work within the constraints of the culture and what the people in the region, you know, what their appetite is. In Colorado, Excel is spending hundreds of millions of dollars on updates that will allow for the grid to tell homes when to draw energy for certain uses. This could one day make it possible for customers like Jerry Palmer in Boulder to charge his car more cheaply at night. But he's eyeing a different solution. He's thinking about adding battery storage, like Tesla's Powerwall system. I'm connected to the grid, and I could now, with a Powerwall, I could actually go off the grid and generate and store that energy right in, in my own garage. Right now, that's an aspirational goal for Palmer. But if more customers prioritize independence, that could create the biggest challenge for utilities in the future, convincing customers not to leave the grid. I'm Grace Hood, CPR News. In May, a Colorado man who pioneered climate change research was honored with what's often referred to as the Nobel Prize for Environmental Achievement. 82-year-old Warren Washington received the Tyler Prize. He, is, he not only helped create one of the first computer models of the Earth's climate, he has also advised six presidents on climate change. He told Colorado Matters' Ryan Warner he owes his love of science to his first library card and to a high school teacher. I asked her one day, why are egg yolks yellow? (laughs) And she said, why don't you find out? And that was my first adventure into figuring things out. Into getting the answer for yourself. Well, it had something to do with seeds that have sulfur compounds, which are yellow. Hmm. To your work with early computer modeling, now that seems intuitive, right? We have incredibly powerful computers that are tiny. Help us understand uh, how revolutionary, how different it was to think that you could use these devices called computers. We're talking in the late 60s and early 70s. And have them connect at all to the weather or longer range to climate. One thing to think of is 
the computers were room size, and yet if you compare it to an iPhone, the iPhone is much faster and much larger storage (laughs) because of the time that we started at NCAR. National Center for Atmospheric Research. Yes, on that place didn't really have a computer, so we borrowed some computer time at the University of Colorado, which used vacuum tubes, and the computers were very hot. I love this idea that you had to borrow computer time. (laughs) In in other words, they were rare enough and probably expensive enough that you had to borrow time on someone else's. It took one day of computer time to calculate one day, so we weren't making much progress in the early days. But then when computers became faster, we could do a, a century in just a few days of computer time. A century of predicting? Predicting. What year did you first have the realization that people, through greenhouse gases, were shaping climate in a new way? I think in the 1970s. And we were approached by the Department of of Energy. Scientists were concerned about what are the effects of increased greenhouse gases, especially carbon dioxide, because that's a special responsibility for the Department of Energy. Not not to make you feel old, but basically you've been working with the concept of climate change for as long as I've been alive. I think our our first publications were in 1980. Does it astound you that there is still doubt about this science? Well, I think things are a little bit more complicated than that. On the skeptics of climate change said, oh, on the model doesn't take into account variations in solar radiation coming from the sun. Well, it turns out that all of these ideas of the skeptics have been tested very thoroughly by not only our group at NCAR, but by other groups also. And we kept finding out that carbon dioxide was the biggest forcing of of many other smaller forcings. Forcing is such an interesting term. It's just a variable. Yeah turns out that we have worked with the National Academies of Science and Engineering and Medicine to examine each one of the skeptics' concerns about our models. List a few. Just will you tick off a few? Like what? Like the effect of clouds, volcanic eruptions. You were first tapped to be on a science advisory board by George H.W. Bush. I think this was in 1989. And I, I wonder what the questions were then about climate change. That was an interesting situation. I was at a meeting and someone said, you've been referred to in Newsweek magazine. The chief of staff of the president said that you're wrong. uh, About what? Essentially about a changing climate. And so I sent a telegram to him at the White House to John Sununu, and I said, no, you misinterpreted our research. And then when I got home, I got a telephone call, and it was John Sununu. He says, what do you mean I was wrong? Well, I explained it to him, and then he says, I don't know anything about climate models. Can you send me on your book on climate change? So I sent it to him in overnight mail. He was very impatient. Because he called back and said, it didn't get here today. (laughs) (laughs) He took a position 
that climate change is not true, is not good science or whatever. And it turns out he still has that same attitude. Which administration did you feel the closest connection with on the issue of climate change? Well, it's clear from my association with all of the different administrations that President Obama probably has the most scientific way of dealing with this. How would you describe your relationship to the current administration? Do you have anyone's ear at this point? Well, I'm certainly very knowledgeable of the president's head of the Office of Science and Technology. But he has a difficulty, and most people have, is that Trump wants to sort of do his thing with climate change. He's a non-believer. You were the first black president of the American Meteorological Society. It was in 1994. But I think further back to 1964, when you earned your doctorate in meteorology, only the second African-American in the United States to do so. What was it like to see so few faces of color alongside you in the classroom, in laboratories? Well, I've gotten used to it as a way to say it. In those days, I went to Oregon State. Most of the, of the African-Americans on campus were on the football team. Uh, I was a physics major. There were some advantages of being black. I could get into athletic events by just telling them I played tackle. <laughs> Even though okay. I weighed 150 pounds. <laughs> huh. you, it's interesting you say it's something you've gotten used to, which makes me think that uh, even today you don't see as many faces of color as you'd like. I think we've made significant progress. We had a American Meteorological Society meeting in January, and at the end of the banquet, all of the African-Americans had a photograph. I didn't count them all, but I think there's roughly over 100 people in that one photograph. Now, if you'd have taken that photograph, say, 30 years ago, how many? It would have been three or four. You still spend two days a week at the National Center for Atmospheric Research in Boulder advising younger scientists. And is there something you notice in particular about the young people, like what's driving them? A lot of them are becoming very aware of climate change, for example, and are asking, how can I contribute to making climate models and observations more consistent and helping convince the public that we have a serious problem and I'm going to help solve it? In other words, they want to build on the work that you helped begin. I think so. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Climate science pioneer Warren Washington, who lives in Aurora, speaking with Ryan Warner a few months ago, ahead of the prestigious Tyler Prize for Environmental Science, which was presented in May. Finally today, nearly 100 miles southeast of Denver is Colorado's hub city. Lyman is at the crossroads of I-70 and a handful of other major roads, making it a popular stop for gas. But on June 22nd, the town hopes people will head to the livestock barn at the county fairgrounds to catch the Colorado Prairie Music Festival. The festival started in 2017, and Tim Anderson of the Lincoln County Tourism Board told us back then that he hoped it had become an annual event. 
what we really wanted to do is to bring in people from around Colorado who've never been out on the Eastern Plains to see what Lincoln County has. We have a great amount of things to do, and it's a beautiful place. If you want small town Americana, great people, it'll be great music and a great time. This year will feature country artists Chancey Williams and the Younger Brothers Band, as well as Christopher Thomas, a Colorado native and a former bareback rider who was raised in the ranching and rodeo lifestyle, which he sings about in his song Rodeo Kid. Ten sizes, too small for his boots. He'll straddle that armchair to someone opens his shoes. He might scrape up his elbow. He'll keep the pain here Cause he's as tough as they come He's a rodeo kid He's a wild horse rider With his spurs and his shafts And he'll ride the rank ones When he wakes up from his nap He'll turn those old boats Just like his daddy did Nobody can stop him He's a rodeo kid Colorado's own Christopher Thomas will help us kick off the third annual Colorado Prairie Music Festival on June 22nd in Lyman. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Avery Lill, and this is Colorado Matters from CPR News. He don't know he's small Cause his dreams are so big 